which is this season where we tell these great stories about the life of Christ and we ask ourselves what is being revealed about, about God, about the world, about our own lives, and how should we respond. And I'm excited about our, our, our story for today. It's such a great story. Um, but first I want to ask, how many of you um, are superstitious? How many of you have a superstition of some kind? Like, how many of you are wearing the Chiefs clothes you're wearing today because you wore them last week and we won? Anybody got that thing going on? That's a superstition. I like to think that I'm not superstitious, but, like, I, I knock on wood when I say I've avoided something. Anybody else do that? And I, I, I make a wish when I see a falling star. I just do. And if, if I find, when I find a penny on the ground, I pick it up, even though pennies are annoying and I never use them. If I see one on the ground, I pick it up because I figure, what if it, what if it works even if you don't believe in it, right? <laughs> How many of you have those kinds of superstitions? Okay, that's most of it. Psychologists say superstitions evolve to help us cope with our lack of control or our lack of authority over life in the world, and they, they help us feel like we have some measure of authority. And in the ancient world, the most superstitious people, to me, seemed to be the sailors, which makes, makes sense. You know, no, in those days, nobody had ever seen underneath the sea. They didn't have goggles, much less like submarines and scuba gear. The ocean was a black box, completely beyond human authority, and it was powerful. It could swallow up ships and crews without a trace. And, and so to sail was to sort of come under the authority of the sea. And so these superstitions evolved among sailors to help them cope with that. So for instance, tattoos were generally, you know, they're so popular among sailors to this day. They, they were generally good luck charms that could not be lost. Although it turns out mostly they just helped identify the bodies that washed up on the shore. <laughs> um, but lots of things were considered, but that's a pretty good one, right? Like, that's bad. Um, but lots of things were considered to be bad luck. They had all these taboos, like whistling on a boat, or losing your hat overboard, or bringing bananas on board was, was taboo. Um, shaving, personal grooming of any kind was, was thought to be bad luck. Or stirring your tea. I have no idea why that one was. But it was also thought you should never set sail on a Thursday or a Friday. Thursday was Thor's day. Thor's, I guess, might get mad if he took a trip on his day. And, and then they had some good luck things, but it was like um, their charms or their, their tattoos or dolphins swimming alongside a boat was good luck for a ship. But maybe their biggest superstition was you were never supposed to change the name of a ship. So it goes back a long ways. Like in the, in the book um, Treasure Island, Long John Silver says, what a ship was christened, so let her stay. And every sailor knew a story of some captain who had changed the name of the ship and met their doom on the ocean. The practical reason for this was that every ship had a reputation for getting its cargo to port, and, and to, a ship's captain traded on the name of the ship, and to change the name was to lose the reputation. The superstitious reason they gave was their belief that when a ship was christened, its name went into the ledger of the deep that was kept by Poseidon himself. And renaming the ship meant you were trying to slip something past the gods. And so the sailors had this elaborate renaming ceremony to mitigate this. They'd 
remove all traces of the old name from the ship. So all the carvings, letters, initials. They would burn the old logbook and, and paperwork. And then they would request the gods. They, they would just forget all about that old name. And they would rechristen the new boat with alcohol. Um, pouring some of it into the water uh, as a, a sign, uh, offering to the sea gods. And then the entire crew had to drink a toast to the new vessel, which opens up a possible third reason for the superstition was that they really just wanted to get drunk on the captain's dime. Um, but to change the name of a vessel was a serious thing because names carry a lot of power in human communities. If you have a baby... Choosing a name, it's a huge part of this. If you start a business, we call it branding now, but that's just an elaborate form of naming. People spend millions of dollars naming things because there's a lot of power in a name. Often it's the power to evoke a certain kind of image in people's imagination. So Starbucks is named after a character in the novel Moby Dick. It's meant to connote, according to their website, the romance of the high seas and the tradition of the early coffee traders. Though for me, it mostly connotes overpriced coffee and this odd disdain for the terms small, medium, and large. Can we just call it small, medium, and large? Some names invoke like a meaningful history, like the, the 3M Corporation used to be Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. Who knew, right? And you don't know the meaning of the name unless you know the history. One of my favorite naming stories is, comes from a company called the Rocket Solvents Company who was developing this chemical to avoid rust and to displace water so rust wouldn't build up. And after 39 failures, they achieved appropriate water displacement on the 40th try, and so they called it WD-40, Water Displacement 40. And now four-fifths of U.S. households have a can of WD-40 somewhere in the house but can never remember where it is, or is that just me? <laughs> Amazon.com was originally Kadabra. Did you know this? And, and um, they, what they found was autocorrect always changes it to cadaver, and they were like, oh, no. <laughs> that's... That's not at all what we're going for here. So they changed it to Amazon, right? The largest river for the world's largest corporation. Lego comes from the Danish words for play well. And then you know what Hagendaz means? Nothing. It's, it has no actual meaning. They just made this word up to sound and look old world Danish, which I think is not fair. But this has something to do with, there's a joke there about ice cream and it, how it's like deceptive to, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not such a great example. But most of the time, naming is connected to authority. So like to name something is to claim the right to define its meaning and purpose. And even names themselves are given weight. They're given authority. So think about where you get your news and information. The name of certain news outlets will carry authority with you. You'll listen to them and give weight to what they say, and then the, the, just the name of other, other news outlets will disqualify you. There is a big joke in that phrase, but I'm not going to say it. Um, but this, this is just part of what names can carry, like a sense of authoritativeness or, or not. 
Names can also signal a deep connection or bond. Like anybody have a nickname for a child or family member or a spouse? Like one that only you're allowed to use? And then if someone else uses it, it it's like, it sort of diminishes it. It's like, what are, you, what are you doing? That's our thing. You don't have the authority to use that, that name. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, The Lord said, light, and there was light. In the story, the naming of creation preceded even the existence of creation. The authority to create came through a word, and the speaking of that word was a naming and then the first task given to humanity was the naming of the animals, which signified human authority within the created order. Like God was telling all the animals, these people naming you, I'm putting them in charge. I know Dodo is an unfortunate name for a bird, but they're calling the shots, okay? So they're, they're leading this thing. They're naming things. Naming's connected to authority. The one who names something claims a right to determine that thing's meaning that thing's purpose it's why the third commandment you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain to the jewish people it meant don't even say or even write the name of god because to try to name god is to somehow claim authority over god we we simply do not get to do this in scripture um, people were often renamed to show that a new authority had taken hold in their life. So Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel. They were renamed to um, connote this new authority that's exercising control over them or defining them, determining them. King Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing when the Hebrew children were brought um, into his, to be his subjects. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah became Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Naming them was a way of claiming authority over them, determining their lives. Jesus did this as well. Simon, we heard last week, got renamed Peter. James and John became Bonerges, sons of thunder. Saul became Paul. This, this idea of naming things, it's connected to authority. And, and to name something is to claim the right to define its meaning and purpose. And these two ideas of naming and authority are at the heart of our scripture for today from Mark chapter 1. We're told they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught and they were astounded at his, at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is actually a photo of ancient Capernaum um, taken from out on the Sea of Galilee. So the, that group of trees there, this, is a, this, is, this little town was home base for Jesus for most of his ministry. Just a little fishing village on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. In, in the close-up pictures, you can see there's this octagon. It's a church that's built on stilts, on pilings. So over there on the, on the right-hand side, you can kind of see that shadow. That's where they, they think Peter's house was. And, and then the, the right kind of rectangle at the top left was where the synagogue was found. This building is actually from like the 4th century. The, the, the actual synagogue from our story is probably just right underneath that, at rubble underneath it. And in all likelihood, Jesus had a, was renting a little house or home here in Capernaum. And at the heart of this little town 
would have been the synagogue. In, in Jewish history, any quorum of 10 Jewish males um, could form a synagogue and read Torah together. And any place where that happened was considered to be sacred space. And then we're told in the, in the text that this whole thing takes place on the Sabbath, which is sacred time. So Jesus here is in sacred space on sacred time. And it says he's teaching. By the way, it's interesting that, that this whole confrontation here is a response to Christ's teaching, this new way of understanding life in the world and what it means to be human. And in Mark, we're constantly told that he's teaching, but rarely told what he taught. We're only told that he taught with authority, not like the scribes. And that his teaching was seen as a threat by some, especially the scribes. Scribes, if you don't know, scribes were Jewish men, only males, who could read and write, but were not rabbis. They were scholars and experts in interpreting Jewish law. And they were likely the originators of the synagogue service. So Jesus here is on their turf. The, the synagogue is the domain of the scribes. And he began, if you remember his story, at the margins out on the sea with the fishermen. But now he's moving to the center of the Jewish social order to the synagogue where the scribes are the authority. When the scribes would teach, they had this way of doing it. So they would read the passage and then they would say, well, you've heard it said, and then they would quote some famous rabbi. And then they would say, but you've also heard it said, and they would quote some other famous rabbi about the text. And, and then they would say, and, and so this is why in our community, in our synagogue, we practice this practice. So they had authority over issues of Jewish law, but it was, um, it was derivative, you know what I mean? It was like they borrowed it from the great rabbis, and it was based on knowledge, not, you might say, on wisdom or, or insight. But Jesus, he shows up teaching with his own authority, and everybody kind of freaks out. And it's not in the text, not so much what he's teaching, but how he's teaching. He's teaching with authority. Um, and we know a little bit about the mode of his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in a different gospel. He, he, it's in the text where he, he said, you have heard it said, and then he would quote a famous rabbi. So he starts out just like where the scribes would do, but they would stop at that point. But Jesus would say, you've heard it said, then he'd say, but I say. And he would um, say something different, say something that, that contradicted them. So he, he claims authority for himself. And his teachings make a change in how they would obey or, or view the, the law, how to organize and structure their common life, how to manage their relationships, how very often how to include those on the margins who had been left out. So in the story, Jesus is in sacred space and sacred time and begins teaching with authority in the domain of the scribes. But he's not teaching like they do. He's teaching with this different kind of authority. And the moment he does this, this conflict emerges. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It's the first time he names him. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The second time he names him. 
Now, I don't know about you, um, so I grew up Southern Baptist kid, and uh, this conflict was almost always read like it was a page out of a Frank Peretti novel. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, this present darkness, you know. But, but it's really, it's not like spiritual warfare in a sense, like between angels and demons or something out of the Exorcist movie. Remember, what Mark has said is the struggle here that's being set up is between the authority of Jesus and the authority of the scribes. He's moved into sacred space and sacred time, into the domain of the scribes, and he's teaching with authority. And he immediately faces this dramatic opposition. And, and so from, from like the moment he enters that synagogue, it becomes clear that Jesus' whole kingdom project is incompatible with these local authorities and the, the entire social order that they represent. Because this man with an unclean spirit confronts Jesus immediately. Now, um, Real quick, just think about clean and unclean. For the Gospel of Mark and the Jewish people, really, they're, they're, these were just ways of talking about the dynamic forces or powers of holiness and impurity. So unclean, it, it meant some impurity was making things dysfunctional. And clean meant things were functioning as God intended. And, and the unclean for them was seen as like this dynamic Force, almost like something's radioactive. And so it would contaminate anything it came in contact with. Anything unclean um, would contaminate any, anything, person, thing, place it came in contact with. So anything unclean was, in their practice, to be shunned, to be pushed outside the community. So when this, this unclean spirit shows up in the synagogue, it's a serious threat to the holiness of the the people and their, their synagogue, their building, and, and the community itself. This man would contaminate everything he came in contact with. So everyone in that synagogue would be ritually unclean because of this encounter. That's, and it's basically like a metaphor for their entire social structure. The way to deal with the unclean, with impurity, with struggle and brokenness was to, to keep separate from it. By the way, we all do this to some extent. It's not just them. Like, we all have this tendency to distance ourselves from things that are messy, you know, from needy people who are clingy and they stick to us, from broken situations that might embroil us in some conflict, from broken people who might get their brokenness all over us. We have this tendency to try to avoid things that are messy, but here the messiness has shown up inside the synagogue. This unclean spirit confronts Jesus, questions Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the, here the resistance comes in, in the form of a, this curious Greek phrase, um, it's, an, it's an idiom, like a common parlance of the time. Literally, it reads, what is yours and what is mine? That's what it says. So it's, it's a question about authority in this place. Like, whose domain do you think this is? Like, is this your domain or, or ours? 
whose domain is the synagogue? Well, in, in the Gospel of Mark, it makes it clear, like, it's, it's the scribes' domain. Hang on to that. And then it says, have you come to destroy us? Which is an expression of fear. It's feeling threatened. And there's this question that, that if you read commentaries, all the commentators ask this, this question, and I think it sort of blows open the passage a little bit, at least it does for me. And the question is, upon whose behalf is this spirit pleading? Who, who is afraid Jesus has come to destroy them? And, and again, because we've read too many Frank Purdy books and seen too many exorcist films, we, we just assume it's like the devil or something. That's kind of out of left field. Like Mark has not mentioned that sort of thing. Mark has talked about the, the scribes. And so if we're, we're thinking about who is speaking for, it, it's, it's probably the group that's already been identified in this conflict in the Gospel of Mark, who's being contrasted with, with Christ here. Because Mark says Jesus is invading the space and questioning the authority of the scribes and was seen as a threat to their social role and power. They're the ones in, in the Gospel of Mark who will move against him because he's a threat. And then the Spirit says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So again, he's trying to name Jesus as a way of seizing authority over him. Of course, the weird part is, he's right. He's, the, the name is accurate. Holy One of God is actually what you call a prophet. It's a quote from the story of Elisha, the prophet. So it's odd. What, what the Spirit says about Jesus is true. He is the Holy One of God come to destroy um, the powers here. But, but Mark, um, he just does this. He often uses unclean spirits to say something true about Jesus, while the ones you expect, like the scribes, they, they can't say something true. They don't even notice it, which is the key to understanding this story. The people in the synagogue, they have no idea what's happening or even who, who Jesus is. They're enamored with his teaching, it says. But this unclean spirit immediately senses a threat to its authority, not just over this man, but over the synagogue and over the wider community. It immediately senses Jesus is a threat and confronts him and tries to name him, tries to take authority over him. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread all throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus re rebukes in, in English. The, the Greek word is epitomao. It, it means muzzled. He muzzled the spirit silenced it, cast it out, and then we're kind of left with this embarrassing situation. There's an unclean spirit right in the middle of the synagogue on the Sabbath. How come the scribes and the people didn't know it? I mean, it's very clear this man, it says, is from in their synagogue. It's one of their own, possessed by this unclean spirit. And, and kind of the implication is that the problem here is homegrown. It's systemic. It's embedded 
in their community, in the Jewish social order where these scribes held authority. It's one of those times if we're, if we're thinking too individualistically as we read this, we'll miss what's really happening. It's, this isn't really a story about how um, Jesus can heal you of your personal demons, although that's not untrue. Absolutely, that's part of Christ's ministry, but it's really not the, um, you might say, the revolutionary point of this story. The tension in this story really isn't about the personal aspect. It's about how the powers of evil have taken up residence among the people of God, and they had no idea. It's happening right under their noses, and they can't see it. Because the spirit of the scribes who controlled the synagogue and were experts in the law and who were deciding who's clean and unclean and who's included and who is shunned, it's possessed this community. And if they knew this guy was possessed by this evil spirit or unclean spirit, they would have never let him into the synagogue in the first place. But they can't see that he's unclean because he's filled with their spirit, the spirit of the scribes. Now, we have to be really careful here not to make this into an anti-Semitic trope. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing going on in this congregation that doesn't happen in every church, including this one, you know? This is a problem that all of us struggle with from time to time. All of us have trouble seeing the spirits that possess our groups and the way evil invades cultures and systems and, and social groups and even, even the church. And, and it's really hard to see this stuff because we're implicated in, in the brokenness. You know what I mean? Like when we benefit from broken social systems, it's just really hard to see because we're, we're part of the problem. But the powers have this man under complete possession and control. And, and, and the powers in this domain at the synagogue are the scribes. But the scandal is he fits in just fine with all the religious types. This is like, this may hurt you a little bit as a pastor. This hurts me a lot, right? You just couldn't see it. How often can I just not see it? Because I'm implicated in it. They don't even know that something's off here until Jesus shows up, teaching with this new authority. And, and even then, the people are somewhat oblivious, but the Spirit knows tells the truth. The Spirit's afraid that Jesus is this destabilizing threat to their entire social order because he is. It's a conflict mainly and here and all throughout the Gospel of Mark between Jesus and the religious authorities. Here it's the scribes who gain their authority by being smarter and more educated and having power, who spend their life drawing boundaries around who's in and who's out. But here Jesus takes authority in the synagogue, which means he's taking it away from the scribes, really undermining, destabilizing their social order. And through his actions, he's, he's clearing the way for the reign and rule of God, a new order in which um, people are not shunned for having serious problems. We're, we're broken people and strugglers 
are invited to draw near to the people of God, to the, to the heart of God here in, in the synagogue. So this unclean spirit possesses a man from the synagogue, and he really kind of represents that scribal establishment whose authority undergirds the um, Jewish social order, which is an order that leaves far too many people out. You know, on the outside, looking in at the blessings of God. And this, this is not a Jewish problem, like exclusively. This, this is a ten, temptation that grips all of us in all communities, especially any place where we have some authority. It's just this temptation to use that authority to enhance the value of our group, you know, monitoring boundary markers between who's in and who's out, because the more exclusive the group, the more value we see in belonging. You know, it's the, the what's that, Groucho Marx line, I'd never be one, part, want to be part of a club where they let me be a member, you know. The more exclusive, like, group exclusivity enhances the value of belonging. The more people we keep out, the more special we start to feel. And just look at the religious authorities in the wider church today. Start including people they want to exclude. They will come after you with pitchforks, man. And those who want to be part of the movement Jesus started, they, they must be prepared to be rejected by our own people, people we thought we were part of, for including those they they want to call it unclean for making space for broken outsiders. And they'll say we're acting, you know, against the interests of the group. And if they have any kind of religious authority, man, they'll say we're acting against the will of God. And they'll try to name us. And the name they use usually is heretic. So they call Jesus. But it didn't deter him from pressing his criticism of any social code that, that would alienate people because of their brokenness, their struggles. I mean, it takes courage to follow Jesus. It really does. It puts us at odds with the authorities, religious and cultural, the ones who control our social, social borders. And so from here on out in the entire Gospel of Mark, it's just this succession of confrontations between the forces of exclusivity and Christ's mission to include those it leaves out. And he exercises this authority over almost every aspect of life. So over nature in the story about calming the storm, over disease and when he heals the sick, over hunger when he's feeding the, the massive crowds, over um, the inclusion of outsiders, women, children, immigrants, lepers, the unclean. It's all in the Gospel of Mark. Over systemic injustice and inequality between classes of people. Jesus enters into these conflicts and he epitomaos, he muzzles the authorities and then calls them out and enacts this liberation of the people and this inclusion of them in the kingdom. 
everywhere he went, he would just expose the powers working with the systems and the structures of the world. He would confront them and just take authority over the powers and set people free from their bondage so that they could be full members of the community. And then, this is the real scandal, then all the like personal stuff, the, the sins and failings, for that, he just offered grace. And, and this really seems to tick people off, you know? Because it's always tempting for religious folks to, to do the opposite of what Jesus did, to focus on all the personal issues of sin, you know, and our failings and our issues. And then just to be completely oblivious to the unjust systems we've created and from which we benefit, you know, the systems that possess the world possess our bodies but they're so hard to see because we benefit from them and so what happens is you get a bunch of people who consider themselves to be personally pious who can't see that they're in bondage to the powers of evil and they don't even know it until it shows up right there in the middle of the synagogue and it's exposed to the teachings of christ I think what Mark's trying to do is, is not to get us on one side going, yeah, you guys, this happens to you. This happens to all of us all, all the time. He just walks through the gospel of Mark with this radical self-sacrifice and love and inclusivity and focuses his followers on these forces of exclusivity. They're just crushing people everywhere. The racism regarding Samaritans and Gentiles scapegoating of immigrants and, and the presence of Christ just ex exposes all of this and each time each time their reaction is to try to name him call him out he gets called a sabbath breaker and a heretic and a drunkard and a blasphemer and Jesus just kept on inviting them saying the kingdom of God is drawn near you guys turn around go the other way or you'll miss it and he claimed authority over every aspect of their lives and invited anyone who's willing to lay down their life um, for the least and last and lowly, they can be part of this. And then for the personal stuff, he was almost dismissive. He's just like, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of that stuff. I'll, I'll just forgive it. So you, you forgive it too. Because the primary conflict in this story is about how the, the powers of evil so easily grab hold of groups and their leaders very often can't see it. They're too busy clinging to and enhancing their authority. And to this day, I mean, the religious folks are, are still, we're, we just, it's so easy to be terribly blind to this, this tendency. And um, you and I can be terribly blind to the powers that have authority and possess our groups, even, even our church. And, and if that's the case, we're passive, you know? If we can't name them, how do we oppose them? If we can't muzzle them and see them, how do we cast them out and set people free? But if we can't, if we can see them and name them and just claim authority, then, then you know, that's, this is how the kingdom comes. And the way you know in... in all of the Gospels, not just Mark, but the way you know what kind of authority has control of a system is you look at how it impacts the least 
and last and the lowly and those who are different and those who struggle. And so this is what I want to leave us with. We just think about this idea, not so much individually, but as a society, as a culture, as whatever social group you feel kinship with or, or even just our, our society at large. What are the, um, you could say, what are the, the spirits that possess our world that name us in illegitimate ways? So, so just think about these for a moment. Spirits that possess our world. Let me give you a list. The spirit of poverty, racism, patriarchy, injustice, violence, wars, spirits of depression, anxiety, addiction, loneliness, inequality, spirits of disease, jealousy, grievance, division, corruption. If we can begin to see these things and name them correctly, then we're given the authority to muzzle them and cast them out and imagine a whole different way of being together. And this way of being together is what, what Christ called the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God. Jesus claims authority over those things. And then he's always given that authority away to you and me, to the people of God. We're invited to share in it. Not by claiming that we know better what's right and clean and, and better than other people, but just acknowledging, oh man, these spirits possess us all the time. Let's name them. Learn to see them. Let's muzzle them. Cast them out. And live as, as the free, beloved children of God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, as we think about that list the things that possess our world. We pray that we would be compelled by Christ's teaching and his authority and especially just his grace over us in the world to, to see and name the things that possess us. And to somehow in naming them allow your authority, God, to just send them away and to let you name us. I'm so grateful that what you name us, you name us beloved children of a loving Father. And I pray that that, that reality, I pray that it would just go all the way down to our bones, to our soul. We are brothers and sisters citizens of the kingdom, beloved children of a loving Father. Help us to live from that place. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion at Redemption is we're just we're released by the ushers and we'll come forward row by row, and you, you'll be offered a, a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond, just say, I will remember, or however you feel.
comfortable. The reason we do that is that on the night Jesus was betrayed, like his last moment with his guys, his disciples, they did this. They shared in this same loaf of bread and cup. And he said, the, the bread is like my body. The, the cup is like my blood, my life. And what I want you to do whenever you gather is just like symbolically take my life into your life and be made of the stuff I'm made out of. Be my hands and feet and do the stuff I did when I was with you and even greater things. He said, every time you gather, do this. Remember who you are. And remember who names you, has, who has authority over how you live. And so this is why we receive communion. And it's also why we don't put limits on who joins us. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. So you're welcome to. Um, before, though, let's, let's pray a blessing together on this table. Oh, God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?